Hey everybody, today's show brought to you by our friends once again at VeloJerseys.com, your source for the finest quality retro jerseys, shorts, hats, and heck, even socks. From Renault, I almost pronounced that wrong, and then I did, and I brought attention to it, to La Vie Claire, to Cos, and Molteni, which I found out is a sausage brand. I never would have thought that. The designs are there with the highest quality and modern materials History is Velo. Velo is now. Go over and check them out. Check on our link at packfiller.com. Click on the Velo jerseys. Go over there. Buy something. It's pretty cool stuff. All right, you guys, you ready? Let's do this. Sean Kelly on the Pack Filler. for sniffing so much. I don't have allergies. Something's going on. I've been sneezing all morning. Ugh. You hate that. You know, it's that feeling when your nose is really itchy. I'm sure you care. Hey, you guys. Welcome to the only podcast hosted by a giddy schoolboy. That's what I've been told. A giddy schoolboy. I'm Pat Bulger. This is a Pack Filler Podcast. Not only is my nose bothering me, but I am sore. I went for a four-hour mountain bike epic yesterday, recording this on a Sunday. And it was beautiful. Actually, I went with my friend Glenn from Elephant Bikes. You might recognize him from shows in the past. Here I am, a guy who lived in this city, this area, for decades and I'm still finding new trails within two to three miles from my friggin' house. You guys, I rode 75% new trails yesterday. Absolutely blew my mind. Four hours out there. It's one of those rides, you know, where you're coming home. Final few blocks are just, they seem like they're taking an eternity. If you haven't experienced a ride like that, then why are you listening to this show? 3,000 calories burned, you guys. 3,000. I basically was able to eat anything I wanted last night. And all I had was chicken and pasta. All I ate on the ride, two gels. Two gels was it. And so I, I figured my calorie count was just, I'm, I'm dialed in, man. I, you know, I can do whatever I want now. It's Easter Sunday. Hell, bring on the ham. No, but yesterday, God, I was shredded. Every flight of stairs was an obstacle. <laughs> I brought my bike in here. I have an outdoor entrance to the studio here, and I brought my bike in to put it away. <laughs> had to go upstairs, and it was just, it was. I basically had to baby step, you know, where you're going step and then bring the other foot up to the same step. You know, I barely got up, grunted, moaned, sighed every time I had to move. Oh, it was beautiful. The, the beers, of course, for my man can. Shameless plug there. Went straight to my toes, as my wife would say. I went and got a growler fill to reward myself and probably gain back any weight I had lost. Filled that bad boy up, came home, poured myself an IPA, Racer 5 IPA. No sponsorship involved there. I just bought it. It was delicious. And as my wife would say, when you've done a hard effort or something like that, your first cocktail goes straight to your toes she says i can feel this drink in my feet <laughs> it was beautiful you guys i got to explore more 
I gotta I have to explore more. I need to ride with other people, I think. I'm a social loner when it comes to cycling. I have trained alone for the majority of my life and perhaps that needs to change a bit. I don't make friends easily. I don't know, maybe that's an adulthood thing. I've got like a core group of friends and and, and they're not really a, a core group of people I hang out with on a regular basis, you know? I I spent probably the majority of my social time with my wife and my son. Is that sad? And, and no, I know I'm not saying it's sad about my wife and my son. I'm saying it's Am I just this poor schmuck sitting in his basement talking into a microphone? Am I coming to some sort of existential crisis here? Is this midlife crisis hitting me right now in the face while I'm recording? Oh, shit. Am I going to go buy a sports car now? Do a fucking triathlon. (laughs) Sorry, triathletes, I pick on you guys a lot. I love you guys. But that is one of those midlife kind of things some of those people do. Now, I'm not talking about all of you guys. Actually, cycling could be a midlife crisis, couldn't it? You know, all those guys buying $14,000 Trek Madones. They don't even know how to pump up the fucking tires. They buy all the nicest stuff, go out there and ride around in their time trial gear. It is. It's a beautiful midlife crisis. Holy shit. Maybe I'm doing it. No, I bet I bet I my bikes don't count. I do need to buy two more though. <laughs> I'm trying to I'm trying to justify two more in the house. I want a fat bike. I've said that on the show many, 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 many times. And now I want one of those elephant uh national forest explorers. Glenn was on his yesterday. You guys and I'm on my full I'm not full suspended, but my my mountain bike, front suspension. I'm on a hardtail. This guy's fully rigid bike and uh, drop bars, and he's just flying through everything. He was dropping me all day yesterday. So I need one of those. I figure that'll make me faster, right? We can only hope. Let's see. Things have been going good lately. Especially for those of you who uh, might have recognized. For those of you new to the show, you might not know I uh, I tweaked the format a little bit recently to focus more on, on good interviews. As basically that's what all podcasting schools of thought seem to say listeners want. You, the listener, I'm here for you. Not to mention I got kind of tired of the same old format. We've been doing it for so long. I started podcasting in, shit, 1999. <laughs> it's really paying off. Some of you guys were concerned, you know, the diehard pack filler people when I announced that I was going to tweak the show format a little bit, but you seem to have adjusted pretty well with me. We were all growing together. I'm surprised at how this tweak has gone, and I'm surprised at the approachability of cyclists. Some of them, that is. It's been really cool to be able to speak with my heroes, writers I watched, tried to emulate, and even had on posters in my room as a kid. And as you guys can guess, today's guest is definitely one of those. One of those people I had on my posters, on my walls. 
And if you don't know who Sean Kelly is, you need to. Honestly, if you just got into the sport and you don't know the name of Sean Kelly, do yourself a favor and look it up. Sean Kelly was my Eddie Merckx when I was a kid. The guy could win anything and pretty much did. He was the reason I rode Vetus bikes <laughs> as a kid. <laughs> if you know me, I'm a big guy. Um, and uh, Vetus, at least back at the time, I'm not bashing on their current materials. They had a 175-pound weight limit, and I think I was 175 as a junior. And uh, those things were fucking noodles. If I press hard enough, you could feel the bottom bracket move underneath you. They're just aluminum glued together, glued aluminum frames. I had a red one, and then I had a blue one, and I think I had another blue one. I honestly went through three bikes. You had to replace, basically replace them every year. Because they just got so soft. Man, but my dad was convinced that I needed to ride one of those. And so I did. Because I needed to be the next Sean Kelly. He was the guy I dreamed of being. On this show today, you guys, on the interview, in case you guys don't know, I pre-record the interviews and then piece this all together, get it out to you at the beginning of every week. I might sound a little bit like Chris Farley's SNL character, if you remember that one. The Chris Farley show is, you know, is, you remember when you... you you won that race. That was cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I might have let it get away from me a little bit on this one. I almost blew it, you guys. I almost blew it. I misinterpreted. As I say, I always fuck up time changes, and I mis I misinterpreted it. I'm sitting upstairs waiting. You know, I've got everything ready. I'm having a cup of coffee in the morning in the interview, and I'm sitting upstairs waiting, and I just kind of sitting there on the computer, and I... Just for fun, typed in, oh, I wonder what time it is in Dublin right now. And I can't remember what time it was. I think it was like 10 a.m. in the morning for me. It was about 10 after 10. And I didn't realize I got it off by one hour. And I was supposed to call Sean 10 minutes ago. I have never moved that quickly in my entire life. I sprint downstairs, dial him up. And it was, I, I honestly thought he'd tell me off in some thick Irish dialect, you know, using the F word as a noun, a verb, an adjective, hell, a conjunction. He didn't. He was actually really cool. He was actually kind of humble about things. When I would thank him or tell him how cool he was, he basically would cut me off. You, you're going to notice it in the, in the show. You might need to listen to this one on headphones, by the way. I been told that uh, some of the phone calls tend to be a bit weak audio-wise. But I'm not exactly going to you know, walk Sean Kelly through the benefits of a Skype account. <laughs> now you got to pick a handle. Green machine. There, yeah, that's a good one. Pick that. Go with that. So put on your headphones. Before I get to the interview again, let me thank you, my friend Noah at CoolWaterBikes.org. Great shop, a great cause. If you're in the Spokane area, drop by their shop. If you are not in the Spokane area, check them out, CoolWaterBikes.org. Buy some stuff. Donate some of your old gear because you know you got shitloads of it in your house. And make a difference in someone's life. I'm not overestimating that. You would make a difference in someone's life. Good shop, good cause, coolwaterbikes.org. Let's talk to Sean Kelly, shall we? 
All right, everybody, for today's guest, I'm going to refer to a simple introduction via Wikipedia. It says, our guest today is an Irish former professional road bicycle racer. How's that for generic? He was also one of the most successful road cyclists of the 1980s and one of the finest classic riders of all times. Turning professional in 1977 until his retirement in 1994, he won nine Monument Classics and 193 professional races in total. I use this simple introduction to hide my personal bias uh, because today's guest I consider to be one of the best humans to ever straddle a top tube. I dreamt of being this guy, and please welcome to the show the great Sean Kelly. How are you, sir? I'm very good, thank you. Well, thank you for coming on. Um, usually with these with these interviews, we, we like to get some sort of a background, and um, I'd like to kind of just, for my own sake, know how you came to be, sir. Your, your cycling career ba- began following your brother, and you won your first race. Um, was, was cycling in the blood, or did it just come by accident? Well, uh, it sort of started in a small town down south of Ireland, uh, close to Waterford. A lot of people will uh, know Waterford better because of yeah. Waterford Crystal, of course. So the town, Carrick on Shore, which is about 20 miles from Waterford. And uh, there had always been a cycling club there for many, many years. And then there was a, um, a disagreement within the committee. So some broke away and they formed another club and they came around to the schools and they were starting bike races for 14, 15 year olds. My brother started a number of months before. He was at secondary school, which we call it here in Ireland, and I was at national school. And uh, they came to national school, as I said, uh, two months, three months later. And uh, the guys from this new club and they said they will have races going on and I went along with some of my buddies from class and it all started in that way. So and now it and then it grew quite quickly if I'm not mistaken all of a sudden into uh, quite a few wins and going there and then your amateur career ran into a little bit of trouble in the form of a, of a suspension dealing with racing in South Africa is that correct? Yes well um, they say that uh, it all went on very quickly but I won my first race I was uh, cycling to and from school um, a couple of miles. I think it was about two and a half mile to and two and a half mile from every day. I had a normal rally all-steel bike, which wasn't a racing bike. And I went along for the first number of races like that. But the first race was a handicap, so I was, given, I was given two and a half minutes over seven or eight miles. So I won my first one, and it went on for a long time before I won a one after that because I was handicapped down a lot. Yeah. And uh, it was, you know, uh, quite a number of months or a year before I really started to show something extra than the other guys that I started with. And uh, after about a year, I started winning a lot of races and went through, uh, you know, junior ranks in Ireland, won the junior championship of Ireland and then started as a, a senior rider or uh, an amateur rider here in Ireland and won quite a lot and went away on the Irish team to many races and uh, I suppose then you uh, got an invitation to go to South Africa to ride this race, the Rapport Tour, uh, went out there, took part on the false names, um, riding as a British team um, and it was an, a trip of a lifetime for an 18 year old of course because the race was a seven or eight day race and then we were giving uh, the same seven or eight days, free holiday there in the best of hotels so it was you know a trip, something that you could not refuse. So I went off with uh, you know two other Irish riders and three riders in Scotland, and it was called, it was the British team and um, Liz Taylor and Burton were on their second honeymoon down there, and there was a lot of English tabloid newspapers. So they decided to make a story about the uh, uh, the team taking part in the race, and 
uh, Taylor and Burton on their honeymoon and that's how we got caught out so got suspended from the Olympics because taking part in South Africa back in those days with apartheid movement um, you know got thrown out of the Olympic Games got suspended actually for, from the Olympic Games for my life and uh, then I decided to go off to France to, the, to, an, to a club out there as an amateur and uh, my, my professional career started from there that had to have been obviously pretty brutal as an amateur to be taking uh, taken out of the contention for an Olympic uh, Olympic Games, but you seem to uh, turn it into quite a positive, I guess, in the long run. Well, yeah, who knows? Uh, you know the way it's uh, life is set out for you. If I had went to the uh, to the Olympics in Montreal, I might have done okay, maybe finishing a top ten. Decided to you know give it another a go four years later and decided decide to stay on amateur. And in that case, who knows? You know, I might have missed the chance to become professional. Uh, so yes, I uh, you know went to France as I said, did very well, and uh, after a year as an amateur in France, got a professional contract, and uh, uh, you know it just uh, blossomed from there on. Wow. Now, how did your relationship, and excuse me if I pronounce his name wrong, because I've been over here in the States my entire life and my career, and I might screw up some names here occasionally, but how did your relationship with uh, Jean de Gribaldi begin? Perfect pronunciation. Good, thank you. <laughs> John de Gribaldi, yes, was... he was a huge influence on my career, because I started, you know, in Ireland, and there were not a lot of people who had, I suppose, you know, experience as I went further up the ladder, uh, especially in the amateur ranks, uh, how to train, uh, they were doing their best. But when I went, joined Flandria with John de Gabaldi, he changed everything for me, my training program. I had to do much more. The first thing he told me when I signed the contract, not before I signed the contract, actually, uh, you're too fat, you're going to have to lose two stone. Uh, <laughs> and I thought I was a lean guy. I thought I was a real bike rider. But he said, no, you have to lose quite a lot. And... Uh, you know, my first years were difficult with him. But, uh, uh, yeah, I won races in my first year professional, and every year I was getting better. I was winning more races, and that's because of his program, his diet regime. Uh, and uh, I think uh, he was, you know, uh, a big part of the cog of the making of my good career. Well, and you stayed with him. Well, you you left for a short amount of time, but then um, stayed with him for quite a bit of your career. Um and again, perhaps it's due to my ignorance for being separated from the immediate news. I had to wait weeks, months at the time to get this information. But a lot of the teams you seemed to race for didn't necessarily seem to be those uh, super teams, quote-unquote, of the area. Uh, you raced for teams that seemed to more focus around you, although uh, PDM, we could all agree, would probably one of those classified super teams. Um, was that yes, a conscious decision? No, go ahead. Yes, yes, that's true, I suppose. Some of the t- uh, a lot of the teams during my career weren't the strongest of teams, uh, but... Um, Oh, Richard Gabaldi, um, I went away from his, as you said. Uh, I went to uh, uh, Splendor, a Belgium team, for three years, uh, and it certainly did not work out. My performances dropped off a lot. I wasn't improving uh, in that team, so I decided to go back to Gabaldi. Uh, I think with uh, Splendor, I, I decided to go for the big dollars for a number of years, but yeah. it wasn't working out, so I decided to go back to Gabaldi again. And, uh, you know, my... My career started to blossom again when I was back with him. And uh, then I did most of my career with John de Gabaldi because I realized uh, I needed him to be behind me all the time because bike racing, it is such a cruel sport. It's a very difficult sport. And, you know, to, uh, to motivate yourself and to do the training that you need to do, it is a very difficult one. Um, and he was, you know, very much behind me all the time. 
also on the diet, I think, and especially back in the 80s, you know, riders were eating any sort of uh, rubbish, you could call it, and <laughs> drinking maybe too much beer as well. Uh, and that certainly, you know, wasn't um, on John de Gribaldi's menu. He was very, very strict on the alcohol and uh, the amount of food intake, you know, that you, need to, uh, that you need to take and what sort of food as well. Because I think bike riders in the 80s, they were eating a lot of ice creams, fresh creams, gravies, uh, chips, all that sort of thing was totally out of the Baldi. I think, you know, that was very important to me. And uh, I stayed with the Baldi for many years and it wasn't, you know, the strongest of team for some races. I think for the stage races like the Paris-Nice and Tour of Catalonia and all those stage races, Tour of Switzerland, uh, it was a very good team in that respect. For, for, the, for the classics, maybe not as good as I would have liked it to be. Uh, but still, I managed to carve out a good classic uh, career at the end of my day. And when you go to the big teams as well, and when I went to PDM, I did see as well that sometimes when you're a big team, sometimes your teammates can be your biggest rivals. Yeah, okay, exactly. What, at what point did, with your relationship earlier on there, did you did you see the ability to go from domestique to team leader? You started with Freddie Mertens, correct, uh, working for him, and then all of a sudden were thrust into that leadership position. Well, I think uh, Gribaldi as well, he was, you know, the guy, um, he was the manager of the team. He was the director of sportive. He, did, he, you know, he took the director of sportive position, driving the car at times. Um, and he was also, you know, the trainer, the coach. He was definitely, you know, my coach very much and my trainer because he was doing all of that. And, um, you know, he was... Um, uh, he was of major importance, I think, as I said, you know, to keep uh, keep me motivated in all aspects of it. He was uh, uh, of real importance. Of of all the wins that spanned over your career, are there any specific, specific boy, that was a tough word, runs that stand out for you? Well, I think, uh, you know, your first Paris-Nice, uh, yeah. you know, was a, uh, a one that I remember quite clearly, um, then when I won my first uh, big classic, like the, uh, the Tour of Lombardy was my first classic. But uh, of them all, the big monument classics, I think winning Milan San Remo, uh, no, no, sorry, um, Paris Roubaix, yeah. uh, that's the one that stands out the most because that is the monument. And you know, to win a Paris Roubaix, first of all, you have to be able to ride over the cobbles, 50 kilometers of cobblestones in 260 kilometer race. Um, it's such a dangerous race as well. So many crashes, so many mechanical problems that can happen. Uh, so to, to win that one, it is you know it is a difficult one. You can be the best rider going into the race, but mechanical crash at the wrong moment, it can you know wipe you out, take you out of your uh, any chances of doing well in the race. And I suppose going back to Vivaldi, you know, in that respect, he did say to me, you know, you're not only a sprinter, you can win races like uh, Paris Nice and Tour of Switzerland. Uh, if you keep on working on it, working on it for many years, and you, and you can also win classics, and you know he just uh, gave me that motivation. I think to try and get better each year, and it did take me quite a while before I did win Paris Nice and my first classic. It took me a long time. I was at least six plus years professional before I managed to achieve it. Well, to be able to do that, to be able to go from spring classics to the stage races and even the, the fall races, you were able to maintain that competitive nature all season long. Um, and not a whole lot of riders, at least especially nowadays, are able to do something like that. Um, do you credit that to his training, or do you credit that to something genetic mutation that you seem to have had, or something along those lines? Well, I think it was the normal thing to do uh, when you were racing in the in the eighties. 
And if you look at the riders who are focusing on the Tour of France, you take uh, Bernardino, you take Laurent Fignon, uh, you take Greg LeMond. Yeah. All of those guys were riding the uh, classic race as well. Maybe not them all, but certainly some of them, uh, you know, especially the Ardennes classic, classics. I think Greg LeMond, he rode, you know, the, uh, the, the Cobble classics as well because he was, you know, very close to winning some of them. He had some very good places. Uh, so, yeah, it, it wasn't anything um, out of the norm to be riding, you know, the beginning of season, then riding the tours at, in the middle of the season, like the Tour of France in July and during the end of season as well, because uh, not only, the, you know, the big riders who were winning the Tour of France, you know, but there was a lot of other riders as well who were just under that level. Uh, and that all changed, of course, later when, you know, uh, I think Greg started to change that when he was winning his first Tour of France uh, then he started focusing on the Tour of France only, and he, he kind of left the classics to the wayside. And it went on from there. We you know we in Duran, and there was a lot of other riders who you know copied that. And uh, that is the way it is now. Of course, riders they just focus because it's so difficult now. Uh, you know, the races I think are much more difficult than they were back in my time in the in the uh, in the years of the 80s. Uh, so they focus on classics or big tours, and you know they've got very very specific, but in my time, I think it was the norm to do a full season. So you would say that racing is definitely, a, a, how has it changed and is it harder? You, you were saying it is harder, but because riders are specializing on specific parts of the season? Well, oh my God, I think, uh, you know, the beginning of season, and I, uh, I see that at the end of my career, you know, the, uh, the final two or three years I was competing, you get the people, the riders from Australia coming back and they'd be saying, oh man, I have 7,000 kilometers done, yeah. and that would be you know, in the middle of January. And uh, that was something, you know, an extraordinary amount of uh, training, uh, amount, uh, kilometer-wise. And, you know, that was, that was changing at the end of my career. And of course, when you uh, when you have riders preparing and training like that, the first race of the season becomes very hard. And uh, that was something you know I didn't have in the beginning of my career because with 2,000 kilometres, you could start racing in the you know, the end of January uh, with a lot of race in France or in the south of Spain, and that doesn't you know exist anymore. If you haven't got 7,000 kilometres done before the first race of the season, you cannot follow the peloton anymore. Oh God. So, other than that type of thing, with the with the fitness of riders, you race through several eras. Let's be honest, from from Merckx through Indurant, and how has the sport changed? Other than that, I mean, technologically there have been huge things, and I don't know if if during your career you seem to really follow into those fads per se. But what could you say were the biggest changes that happened throughout that that time? Well, I think if you look at the riders now, everybody is much better trained. Um, you know, everybody has a coach. If they haven't got a coach within the team, they've got, you know, their own coach which they work under. And that is something, you know, has got so popular in the last 15 plus years. Uh, so riders are much fitter. And, you know, if you take a, a bunch of riders in a race, certainly now, like, they're way, way fitter. Everybody's at much better level than they were when they were back in the 80s. And for that reason, the racing has got much, uh, much faster. But I think, yes, the, the other thing as well, the material, uh, bikes, clothing, all of that have changed as well. Uh, you know, the bikes have got much better. Uh, the aerodynamic, uh, aerodynamics of it has, you know, got very important. And now, you know, a lot of the riders, not only for time trial, but the position on the road bike as well, uh, aerodynamic, uh, aerodynamics, they look at that a big, in a big way, through the, uh, the clothes and the use, through the helmets, 
all of that. So all of those things are, um, you know, after changing big time. But, you know, going back to my career, I suppose, doing a long career was something uh, maybe the genes helped a bit there because I was, you know, pro for uh, for a long, long time. But again, back in the 80s, everybody was doing, you know, 13, 14, 15 years professional, where now... Uh, it's a shorter career normally. Most guys, you know, eight or ten maybe years would be the maximum. And uh, it's the understanding that, yeah, if you can do ten years as a professional, you're doing quite well. Well, you, speaking of genes, you always seem to be one of the guys who could never, you would never fade in the weather. Any type of conditions you seem to just fly through. I remember seeing races in which you were going, just going, oh, my God, this has got to be one of the toughest guys out in the peloton right now. What do you credit to that? How do how were you able to be able to just ride through these brutal conditions? Some of the Perry Roubaix images of seeing you were just I had them on my wall at, at home here. <laughs> well, come to Ireland and ride your bike in in winter, and you will learn pretty quickly <laughs> because we're used to a lot of rain. You know the weather conditions in Ireland are certainly not good, and um, you know uh, from my upbringing in Ireland, I suppose I was able to support the bad conditions, the horrible conditions in the races like the cold the wet conditions uh i was able to rise and perform very well in that and uh, for that reason i think coming from Ireland it did help me but when we got very warm conditions extremely warm in the month of july in the tour of france that's where i did struggle and you know it's, it's well known it's well documented that i didn't perform well in the real warm conditions and you can understand why uh, coming from paddy lands, you don't get many uh, w- warm conditions even in the middle of summer. So, so it was the heat that tended to be the most brutal for you. Yes, I yeah. think uh, uh, my competitors, you know, they knew uh, quite quickly uh, when I started performing well when I was a challenger, uh, you know, for the stage races and in the Tour of France. Uh, they knew that uh, the real warm conditions I did not support it well, and you could see my performances were not as good. Uh, in the warm conditions and uh, certainly you know the Tour of France that's where I got cut out I think the heat the real hot Tour de France that's where I performed uh, at my least of all the riders that you competed against you had and I don't know who you could call them rivalries you would go from competing against guys such as Francesco Moser and stage race winners such as Le Monde and Nino and um, Eric Van Der Arden sprinters at the time were there any specific writers you looked up to, respected, or things like that along your years in your career? Well, I think Bernardino, as uh, a stage race rider, although he was, you know, a rider who could ride well in the classics as yeah. well because he won Paris through Bays and, you know, he won a lot of classics, won a world championships, which is uh, similar to uh, a classically a one day race. Uh, but I think we remember Bernardino for, you know, his uh, Tour of France's and Tour of Italy's and Tour of Spain performances. So for me, as a stage race rider, he was, you know, the uh, the one I looked up to. He was, you know, uh, he, he was a real, very, very headstrong, as they say in France. You know, he's a Breton, which, you know, is that area in France. And um, he was an amazing rider. Like, when he got something into his head, you know, he would, uh, he would make it or burst. And that was the style of rider he was. So... Definitely for me, he was, you know, one of the ones I, I looked up to during my career, I'm talking about. And, of course, then the classics, a different style of rider. They're like, you know, Greg LeMond, uh, who was in the classics. And, uh, yeah, he was the uh, he was the one who was yeah, uh, performing very well. And I came up came up against him a number of times in Milan San Remo. I remember I arrived with him in the sprint in the Milan San Remo and won my victories there. And in the, in the Paris-Roubaix, of course, as well. But Eric van der Aarden then, and there's, you know, Eddie Plankard and... Yeah. 
Steve Bauer, the Canadian rider who was very good in the classics as well. There's, you know, uh, Frank Host. Uh, there's, you know, a list of riders of the classics who, you know, I came up against were very, very good performances and, you know, big enemies uh, in the, in that time. If we had some sort of a magic time machine where we could bring riders from past and riders from the current together, do you think we would have competitive nature? Do you think are there any riders who would be competitive in today's peloton? Well, I think, you know, the big names from the past, they yeah. would still be competitive. You could just, you know, uh, go uh, come forward in time. Now, um, the guys, uh, you know, matter what, you, um, you know, in, in what decade you put them in there, I think, you know, they would still, you know, be winning races. So you take the guys who are in the, in the 80s and winning the Tour of France, um, you know, they would be still winning the Tour of France today if you could come forward. Because, of course, you know, the training has changed. I think, yes, those riders, if somebody has got the genes, they're talented, they've got a natural ability. If, you know, you put them through that training, which is needed at that uh, chosen moment, they would be still winners. Well, are there any riders you see in in the current peloton to be able to cross that border from classic specialist to tour contender? I, we see Peter Sagan being able to kind of try to make that blossom. I don't know if there are a whole lot of other really potentials that you might see. Well, I think uh, if you look at Geron Thomas from Sky, yeah. he's the one who was talked about it, you know, in the end of last year, and uh, he is, you know, focusing more on the uh, tours and. Uh, the three-week tours, and, you know, he has performed quite well. Um, but he's also a rider who can, you know, perform uh, really well in the classics. He's proven that already. He's won some semi-classics, uh, and he's going to make that change, and it's going to be an interesting one, you know, see can he make that breakthrough. Uh, you know, he's uh, already done quite well. He's won some, you know, week-long stage races this season, notably the Paris-Nice, yeah. and uh, he's, you know, been up there last year. So I think... Uh, He's the one who could, uh, you know, cross that uh, that barrier and end up winning a three-week tour in another uh, year or two. The problem is Peter Sagan. I think he's capable of winning week-long stage races, and we've seen him in the Torino or the Rattico on some of those races. Yeah. But if you focus totally and train specifically to win a, uh, a week-long race, well, then you'll maybe lose out in your sprinting ability. Maybe your classic uh, uh, edge, you know, goes off a bit. And they're, you know, uh, they're not uh, making that change quickly because I think Peter Sagan, he's better suited to winning big, the big classics we've seen. You know, last year in Richmond, the way he won the World Championships, I think he's capable of winning big classic races as well, like, you know, the monuments here in Europe. Well, if anybody has any advice for Garon Thomas on Perry Nice, I'm sure you could probably offer him some. Seven victories, if I'm mistaken? Yes, seven victories, and you know, looking at Geron Thomas's victory uh, only there uh, recently, I think you know he performed really well. He was put under pressure by you know some really big names, notably Alberto Contador, and he held on to win there. And I think you know that uh, that sh- uh, you know showed me. I think you know mentally uh, he's able to do it as well. He's able to take that pressure when he's really put under pressure. So I feel he could be one. Uh, that could make the uh, step from being a classic rider more so to a big, uh, a big tour rider, a big three-week stage race winner. So talk to me a little bit about retirement and what that's been like for you. You went into the broadcast booth. You've ta- we're obviously with Sean Kelly Cycling. Uh, a lot of guys going to, I, that I've talked to have gone into touring companies and re- directing that sort of a thing. You're uh, dealing with clothing, custom clothing, and you're also doing the broadcasting. Yes, well, the broadcasting is something... Uh, immediately when I retired, I was approached by people from Eurosport to know to come along and do some of the classics. 
And um, honestly, you know, my first uh, couple of years, I needed a bit of time out. I needed to get away from uh, from the sport. I'd been so long in there. Uh, and I said, look, I need a little bit of a rest time. And I did take, you know, two years where I, I totally got away from the sport. I did not go to any of the races, Tour of France, the classics. I just stayed away. I needed that time uh, to clear my head, as they say. And uh, then I went, uh, we had the Tour of France in 98 in uh, in Ireland, the start here, and I got involved with Eurosport and been involved ever since. And uh, yes, enjoy it. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's great to keep you involved. You're in there. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of other stuff as well, like, you know, biking holidays, which is something, you know, in the last 10 years, biking has, you know, exploded here in Ireland, also in England. Um you know, the number of people taking part leisure leisure biking, it's you know, it's it's just a snowball effect and we have so much so many people going abroad to do biking holidays and I'm involved in that with many years with a biking company down in New York. I go down there every year for, you know, at least a month and a half. And yeah, recently started doing a line of clothing, you know, Sean Kelly bikewear, which is you know, going quite well so uh, from what I thought at the end of my career would be, you know, um, very, very casual times, nothing to do. It's not turned out in that way at all. <laughs> Keeping you busy. Well, and with your cycling commentary career, commentating career, it's been, no offense, I always thought of you as more of a man of action versus a man of words. Um, somebody had told me the legend that, that Sean Kelly was the first guy ever to nod in a radio interview. Um, but uh, you seem to have the gift of gab very well. You're... I, I have a lot of listeners who say, Pat, you got to quit listening to the American broadcast and you got to get Eurosport in some way, shape, or form because your perspective on the races is unrivaled. Well, I think, uh, as they say, practice makes perfect. And uh, um, <laughs> I certainly wasn't the one of a, you know, a lot of talk in the early part of my career. Uh, you know, coming from a, a small farm background, you know, wasn't very uh, forward-coming uh, you know, to talk about things when I was spoke, I just about answered. But yeah, I think that changed during my biking career as well. As I went on in my career, you know, uh, I had a lot of media stuff, and uh, you just get a bit more confident. And uh, it got better as I went on, uh, went on and got to the end of my career. And then when I took up uh, the commentary uh, with the Eurosport, uh, in the beginning, of course, the first you know, uh, the first year is a bit difficult until you get. Uh, you get confident in your oh, yeah. feet, and then from there on, I think uh, it's working quite well. I've been in there, as I said, from '98. They seem to be happy. They haven't sacked me yet. I don't believe they're going to sack me very soon. So um, I will keep on doing it as long as you know uh, I'm enjoying it. First of all, and they're happy with my uh, uh, with my commentary work. Awesome, and you d- and the cu- and the clothing business obviously seems to be taking off and doing quite well. And to be able to design cycling clothing from a cyclist perspective. Well, I think, uh, as I mentioned just a moment ago, we have so many people, you know, coming into the sport yeah. uh, from other sports as well. We get a huge amount of people, you know, that take part in, uh, you know, contact sports, and uh, they have difficulty then injuries. Where biking is a sport which you can take up at 35. 40, and you can go on for many years enjoying, you know, uh, riding your bike and getting very good exercise, and also being a bit competitive on a club run. Uh, there's also so many races now for different categories. You can get involved in over 40s, over 50s, and uh, then there's all the uh, leisure cycles, uh, sportive events. You know, there's a huge amount of them, as I mentioned here in Ireland, because there is a demand for that. So 
uh, there is a demand for boy clothing, and uh, yes, uh, it's it's a business that you know I think uh, we see an opening there. There's a big demand, and uh, it's going very well. We're only open running with just over a year, and uh, doing very well, thank God. <laughs> So you're talking about the state of Irish cycling, and we're seeing a lot of uh, uh, Fondo type of events and um, leisure, casual cycling, a lot of tour guides and things like that. And you're in the midst of apparently some sort of a growth, a gigantic growth. Where do you see Irish racing? We see Nicholas Roche. We see Dan Martin. Um, is there any type of Irish ri- racers coming up on the horizon? Well, surprisingly, we have you know a huge amount of leisure uh, cyclists you yeah. know, getting into the getting into the sport. But from the competition end of it, the younger age were still having difficulty attracting uh, the young people into the sport. Uh, it's got better in the last number of years now, the last four or five years. We have more uh, juniors, underage cyclists uh, getting involved, joining clubs, taking part in races. Uh, so I think we will see a bit more of the fruit from that in the years to come. But um, unfortunately, you know, compared to other countries, and uh, if you compare some of the smaller countries, uh, um, you know, and maybe the, the countries that you know were not uh, traditionally big cycling countries, and the number of professionals. Um, certainly, you know, the uh, the United States, the number of riders you have now, Australians that are you know in the professional peloton in Europe uh, and all over the world. Uh, you know, they have they have very big numbers uh, here in Ireland. I think you know we're struggling with that. We should have, I believe, you know, at least eight or ten very good professionals. In, in the European circuit competing like at you know, the big classics and Tour of France level. But we had, you know, from the time that Roach, early myself retired, we had many years where cycling went down a lot and interest in cycling went to a drastically low level. And because of that, we haven't, you know, had the, the opportunity, I suppose. There is talent there, but just, you know, to get that talent uh, out there, get him involved in the in the sport, and get him into clubs, and take him, you know, through the levels, and to get him to a level where, you know, they would be in the uh, position to move on to be a professional bike rider. Yeah, well, what do you think caused that dip? I mean, I let's be honest, cycling is not an easy sport to get into. It's not an, a cheap sport to get into, and enthusiasm seems to wane. I personally think over here in the states, we have a lot of, we just have a. A lazy culture in many ways and a lot of people who are involved in the sport tend to be middle-aged men i don't know what yeah. what, what that yeah. reason well that's is. true i think as i mentioned uh, we're getting a lot of middle-aged uh, not only men but also women here in ireland and uh, you know the uh, the female participation has got huge as well but uh, you know uh, from the com- uh, competitors uh, juniors underage cyclists we had a problem uh, when we had, you know, the big boom in Ireland uh, 15 plus years ago, everybody was so busy making money. Uh, I think cycling, you know, it's a very much uh, a sport at, at club level where you need that voluntary commitment. And we lost that for many years because uh, the economy was going so well. Everybody was working uh, and uh, I think the, uh, the club scene in Ireland here certainly, you know, um, really struggled for at least 10 years and uh, we lost you know, a lot of the younger age coming into the clubs because the clubs weren't active anymore. Yeah. They totally went inactive and because of that, uh, we did not have the uh, young people coming into the sport and taking part in the sport. 
we find over here in the states that we run into um, litigious nature. We run into people placing lawsuits. We run into uh, difficulty with lo- with road closures and insurance types of issues. Is stuff like that happening o- where you are, or is things that you see? Yes. Well, of recent, um, that is uh, starting to be a problem. Uh, you know, um, insurance to run bike races. Um, to get road closures getting more difficult in the past, uh, I would say, only five years now. Uh, so that has proven uh, to be a bit more difficult. Um, uh, certainly, uh, it's a problem which is, you know, you hear more and more about. Well, I don't want to keep you too long, but if and I don't want to talk about necessarily regrets, but if there were any type of races or victories that were left on the table after you finished your career, is there some that, I know the World Championships was something that seemed to have been, uh, slipped your grasp. You took two, two bronze medals over your career. Are there any things that you wish, God, I wish I could have had that or got that back? Well, of course, the World Championships is the one which um, I should have, uh, you know, managed to win uh, because they're like the classics. You know, it's a one-day race, a very long one, and, uh, you know, that was my fourth day uh, point. I was able to perform really well in them. Um, Unfortunately, I came up against a Greg LeMond uh, in France, in Chambéry, when he was on a super strong day, and, you know, he, uh, he, he beat us all in the sprint. Uh, so that is a one. The World Championship certainly are regret not in, not winning that. But in hindsight, when you look back, you know, towards the end of your career or after your career, you know, there's always things you would like to change with experience. And I think if I had focused more on the Tour of France and uh, took it easy in the beginning of season, I think my Tour of France could have could have been much better. Possibly won a Tour of France, but uh, I think I realised that too late in my career and my best years were over. Well, you were able to understand where your body went. I remember seeing an interview where you said, the Tour de France is not something I'm going to win, but you were still able to focus and switch focus on so many other races and and completely dominate for so long. That was, you You were amazing to me. I just want to let you know that. <laughs> I'm trying not to well, gush. Well, I think uh, in the earlier days, uh, you know, the Tour de France, when I was starting to perform and, you know, finishing in the top 10 of the general classification, uh, uh, I believed that I, you know, I could win a Tour of France one day. Um, but as time went on and, you know, um, uh, disappointment, you know, losing out on the big mountain stages each year, uh, then I think that uh, got dented a bit as the time went on. But, you know, when I look back uh, and uh, at the very end of my career, you know, I changed my pro- program a bit. I went to a PDM team. I raced much less in the beginning of season. And I felt, you know, I was much better in the month of July, Tour of France time. Uh, but, of course, as I say, you know, that's something uh, you're learning with experience as you go through your career. And I, I learned that much too late, you know, my good days with a possible possibility of winning the Tour of France are over by the, that time. Oh, man. Well, um, you seem to stay pretty darn fit sir and it what keeps you going a lot of guys have they finish their careers they put their bike up on the wall and they probably never touch it again what keeps you going well i think uh, if you enjoy riding a bike uh, that keeps you going and i certainly enjoy riding the bike um although uh, in the bad weather uh, which we had a lot here in ireland as i mentioned <laughs> uh, but when it's nice weather i certainly like getting out my bike a number of times during the week and i think as i say you know when you're competing as a professional if you're not enjoying your bike and your racing, well, then it's very difficult to be competitive to win races. It's the same, you know, at, um, at, at the level I'm at now, just to ride your bike to keep fit. If you enjoy it, you get something out of it. 
then you go out on your bike and that's the way I am. I still enjoy my bike, uh, you know, to get out and get out with a couple of friends, get out of the club, the local club here and, you know, do uh, uh, do, a, do a one or two bike rides on the weekend and maybe midweek as well. So, um uh, still, you know, still quite happy with that, and uh, I think it keeps you. It's it's important that you continue on after your career to keep some sort of a level of fitness. And there is a lot of riders that you know when they retire, they hang up their bike. But a lot of them do that for a number of years, maybe you know two, three, five years. But then a lot of them get back to the bike again. They get the bike out and dusted off and out on the road. Well, before we go, I, I definitely got to get a plug in for you and see where people can get in touch with you in terms of the clothing, in terms of uh, the things you're involved with here after your after your cycling career. Where can they find you? Uh, well, you just uh, Sean Kelly Biking, Sean Kelly Bikewear, and that will uh, it will all it will all come to you. Yeah, I've been I've been looking at that through myself. I think the uh, the, the local club here we're needing a new kit. Do you guys do? ship all over the world or is it just yes just staying through we you? do we're, we're doing stuff all over the world uh we do um you know a lot of bike we're for clothing corporate events uh you know we're doing as i said you know we're relatively new but uh it's really growing rapidly and uh we're doing uh you know club case corporate case we're doing all of that well awesome well before i send off I, I do want to say, and I hope I'm not going to gush too much, but it's very often, you, not very often, you get to talk to one of your heroes, sir. And and I had posters of you, <laughs> and I just well, wanted to thank you very much. And yeah. uh, just uh, again, hello to all the viewers, and um, it's good to be, uh, it's good to be able, you know, to uh, talk to people that followed my career because that is something uh, when I go to you know the uh, the grand fundos and those yeah. events, I still meet people amazingly that followed my career and never had the opportunity to uh, uh, to actually ride with me and sometimes ride a bit ahead of me. Uh, <laughs> and that is the great thing about biking because, you know, you can go out and ride the Tour of France route, yeah. you can go out and ride the Classics route, you can ride with the big champions. A lot of other sports, you do not get that opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And and to be approachable and, and keep it like that is, is a special part of the entire process. So uh, thanks for keeping it real for so long. Thank you very much. Yeah. So there you go. Did I sound dorky? Did I sound like a giddy little schoolboy? <laughs> oh, it's been good. It's been good. Podcasting is good. Even if it's not making a ton of cash, I at least get to talk to people like that. Speaking of the podcasting, thank you guys. Keep the ratings come. Subscribe to us on iTunes. A lot of you guys are saying I can't listen to the the whole show or I can't fast forward through that bullshit you guys you talk about at the beginning because I just want to get to the interview well you can if you go to iTunes and you actually download the episodes there you can fast forward through my bullshit interviews I mean int- introductions keep the ratings coming talk to me on packfiller.com on Facebook on Twitter on all those things I don't have a Snapchat because I'm over the age of 40 And if you have a Snapchat and you're over the age of 40, you're a pedophile. On that note, I'll talk to you guys next week.